Welcome to Coach House Talks. Good morning, everyone. I'm very conscious this morning that sometimes when you come to church, you're kind of in one frame of mind and then somebody just says something to you and it completely wipes you out. That's happened this morning. Not to me, but to other people. I'm very conscious of it. And the reason I'm saying this, even though I'm sounding really weird, but it'll come right in a minute. The reason I'm saying this is because we have to be really careful. I'll tell you why. Because none of us know where each other are standing when we walk through the door. Not a single person in here knows what somebody else is going through when you cross them in a conversation. Nobody knows what they're sensitive to when you blur out the words that suddenly wipe them out. And we have to be really conscious of each other because we are one body, one church. And Satan is out to destroy what God is building up. And we should be really, really conscious of this every single moment of every single day. And I think Paul exalts us in his words throughout the epistles to be careful with one another, to love one another, to build each other up, not pull each other down. And there's a good reason he does that. Because we are fragile. Hands up if you're not fragile. Okay, so no hands went up. We're fragile. Some of us in different ways to others, but we are fragile. So please, just be careful about what we say to one another and how we say it. Let's just check our thoughts before we kind of blunder in. And actually, we can do more harm. We do a lot of harm if we're not careful. And I think Paul tells us this as he goes through all his epistles. He's always telling us to be on our guard, on our watch, and maintaining what we should be, and watching out for others. I just wanted to say that. That's nothing to do with my preach. I just wanted to say that. I just was very conscious of it this morning. And um, I am conscious of the fact that, you know, when things are starting to move, when things are starting to pick up, Satan does not like what he sees. And he is going to come against us, you, me, church, okay? Because we're one family. And he is going to do that. Okay, let's, uh, we're in Acts. Let's just pray. Father, um, yeah, that was a, a solemn warning for us. And Father, I just want to repent myself of anything that I've said today, which is something which is cut across somebody and just have not built them up, but pulled them down. Father, I just pray that uh, as we spend time in your word, as we spend time with you, Lord, we've already worshipped you, we've already given thanks for your, your, the, the, the sacrifice that Jesus gave to us. And Lord, nothing more should be on our lips than that, that we just want to thank you and love you for what you've done for us. Father, as we look at your word, as we are encouraged to see how you've built your church, Father, will you help us today just to get into that and let your spirit speak to us. Lord, whatever we do the rest of the day and as we meet together tonight, Lord, will you just, by your spirit, lead us and teach us and make us more like you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Now, who was on theology yesterday? Good few people in here on theology course. I, I think we make up about 20% of the, uh, of the people on the theology course, which is great. I'm on another course, which Anne is on. Anne's in here somewhere. Yeah, Anne's on. And, uh, and Anthony Barrow, who you know, so we go on this other course on the School of Ministry for two years, where we're looking a bit more on practical things. How does it, how, how does it all work? How does the spirit work? How do we interact with each other as church? And uh, very interesting yesterday, somebody put a meme up on the screen, which I thought, well, I'm going to nick that because we're in Acts. And it basically was this, that Acts in itself is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle that a doctor wrote Acts and somehow we were managed to be able to read it and translate it and have it in our Bibles. Because if any of you have been to a doctor's and had a prescription, I have no idea how the chemist manages to say what that is. So Luke, who's a doctor, writes Acts for us. So I just wanted to kind of just lighten the mood a bit with that because it is a miracle that we have all of this passed down so faithfully as a good account, a good, accurate account of what was happening in the early life of the church. So last week, Jamie took us uh, through Acts 18, which I think he did really well. So I liked the visuals, I liked the things he put on for us, and I liked his presentation, but most of all, I liked his content. Okay, and I checked it through with him a couple of weeks before he presented it, and I just think he presented it so well to us. So I've got a tough act to follow this morning. And if you remember it, when he was taking us through Acts 18, you'll, you'll realise that we ended up with Paul leaving Corinth in Europe and heading back to Ephesus on the mainland of Asia. So there's the handy map that Jamie gave to us, and it's always good to have a map in it, see where things are going on. So you've got Europe over there, Macedonia is Europe, Greece, and then this side of the Bosphorus, if you know modern-day Turkey, you know half some of Turkey is in Europe and some of it is in Asia. A wonderful city of Istanbul which strides the two. That's in that very, very small bit at the top there where the sea is. And then he's come down to Ephesus, which is down here on the coast, and it's part of Asia. So he's come back into Asia after his uh, diversion, if you like, into Europe when he was headed over there, when he was told he couldn't go back. He had to go to Macedonia. Now, for a long time... I was under the impression that Paul's journeys were a bit like my holidays. Kind of small hops, just get in a boat and just go somewhere, see somewhere nice, go, that's nice, eat the local food, and then go to the next place, and oh, I'll eat some more food, that's nice. I get on another boat, hop over there, get on a plane, hop over there. And you know, in my two weeks that I have holidays, that's kind of what I envisaged Paul was doing somehow. That, that was his extent of his trips. He was just going into these places, and it was a... Because when we have, when we read things, we do read them in the circumstances we find ourselves in. So part of looking at a journey, we'll go, oh, well, our journeys are like this. So we'll think that Paul was in the same kind of sphere as we are. It took me a long time to realise that it wasn't a vacation or a holiday, but a time period of something like 20 years that Paul was faithfully encouraging the early church travelling to churches that had been founded, churches that were suffering from persecution, 20 years, facing rejection 
and outright persecution, and yet he stuck it out. 20 years, travelling around. And he wasn't just on the road all that time. He stayed in places. Establishing churches takes time and effort. Instructing, teaching, correcting, it can't be done from a distance. It has to be hands-on, in the thick of it. So Paul commits time and energy to overseeing and establishing these pockets of believers springing up in Asia and, as we've seen the last few weeks, into Europe. I think we can have a skewed view of Paul and some of his teachings simply because we don't step back and see the full picture of what's going on. And I think it's helpful to go through what we're doing in Acts and to see the context of all these things because it helps us keep perspective. For example, Paul taught that women in the church should be silent and should not instruct men. That's right, isn't it? That's what scripture says. Or have we got a skewed view? Well, it can be argued that some scriptures certainly infer it. And certainly passages in Paul's letters to the church in Corinth have been used to argue this position. But last week, we learnt a lot about Corinth and the persuasions of its temple worship, the complex makeup of its inhabitants, the mingling cultures of this, uh, in this, that were mingling for position in this city. And we learnt about the temple prostitutes, still plying their trade, without governance, even in the newfound freedom that Jesus brings. Many of us in here will attest to and agree that old habits die hard. And we should be honest about such things. Paul's later, or Paul later answers questions that have been directly asked of him by the Corinthian church. This reply that he sends becomes known as the letters to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So we have a contextual setting for these letters that cannot be ignored. You cannot ignore what's going on in Corinth at the time that he writes these letters. We don't have the original questions either. So we are left to surmise what the questions actually are from the answers, which are written down for us in Corinthians. Now I pull out this simply because in Acts 18 that we read last week, we were introduced to Priscilla and Aquila the most famous of man and wife teams. Or, in the scriptural order, wife and husband teams. We have seen before, and Luke has been very clear on this, that names are usually given in the order of importance. So as characters come to the fore, their name moves forward in the order of the list rather than our usual system of alphabetical ordering. Certainly when Paul meets them, the order is this. When he first meets this couple, Aquila and Priscilla is the order. But this is soon switched over and it becomes Priscilla and Aquila. Now it's been argued that this is because Priscilla had some noble heritage However, I would contest rather strongly 
that as it was with Barnabas and Paul, who became Paul and Barnabas, they didn't change because some nobility or something else. They changed because the order of importance was being cited by Luke. It signified the role and the importance of that role at the time. Now, in the passage that we looked at last week, it should also be considered this. Apollos, a very eloquent speaker, a very eloquent teacher, was instructed by Priscilla and Aquila. And note the order. Instructed by Priscilla and Aquila. Now, I say this not to be controversial, although it obviously is. But just make sure that we see how things fit together, helping us to have a better understanding. There was obviously a lot of things that needed correcting in this early church. Which isn't really surprising when you think this is something completely new to them. After all, we've had nearly 2,000 years to get it right. Hmm because we haven't got it right, have we? Otherwise, we wouldn't have churches springing up here, there, and everywhere. Different tastes, different teaching, different doctrine. So many arguments, so many different churches, so many things springing up. So after 2,000 years, we still haven't got it right. So can we actually sit there and stand there and say, we know exactly what was going on here, and that's how we present it today because the truth is we keep making the same mistakes we're humans and we like to make up our own rules in order to control and once we've done that we like to impose them on other people so it's vitally important that we let the Holy Spirit lead us in all truth along with the scriptures that reveal God's plan for us and the example which he gave us through Jesus' life. To this end, myself and Steve went, I've been discussing the view that this church has adopted over the roles of women. And we believe scripture, and most of all Jesus, what his view would be on it, and what scripture's view is on it. And we will report back to you shortly on those findings. But it's interesting that some people who have joined this church in recent years believe that this church does not hold to the role of women. And it's going to be corrected. If you want to speak to me, come speak to me or Steve. But just a heads up. We want to be faithful to what God is showing us. But for now, we'll continue to put a framework in place so that we can look at these letters, we can look at the epistles in clearer understanding. Because I think we have problems. When we take things out of context and we lift them out and say, let's have this today, we're going to make problems for ourselves. So in Acts 19, Paul has left Antioch and he's travelling and visiting churches in Asia. So he's gone back and he's over here and he's left Ephesus and he's going around all these churches that he's founded and helped to support in Asia. Before he eventually comes back full circle and comes back to Ephesus. Now the Ephesians, when he arrives, 
still have a misunderstanding. One that Apollos had to be corrected on by Priscilla and Aquila. And that was this. They had received the baptism of John, i.e. being immersed in water as a sign of repentance, but they had not received Jesus and received his baptism in his name. In other words, the assurance that Jesus was the promised Messiah has paid the price for all sin for all time and therefore gives an assurance of acceptance before God. So not just saying sorry for our sins, which the water baptism represented with John, but actually holding on to the fact that Jesus was the answer to all sin and the assurance of life. So once again, as believers fully place their trust in Jesus, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting that we're looking tonight at are the gifts of the Holy Spirit still in operation in church today? And should they be? So as these believers put their trust in Jesus, as they come to this newfound faith and knowledge, they are empowered. A supernatural change has happened. And it's demonstrated for the sake of the early believers and those around. And Paul hangs around in Ephesus for three months. Preaching in the Jewish synagogue. Now, I have to tell you at this point that Paul preaching in the same synagogue for three months is something of a record for him. Because he usually gets drummed out of town well before that. So three months he spends preaching in the synagogue. The synagogue rejects him eventually. Pushes him out. Says, no, we want to continue in our old ways. We don't want this new teaching. We don't want this new freedom. But the lecture hall of a guy called Tyrannus welcomes Paul with open arms. And for two years, Paul preaches there every day. Two years, just let that sink in. Every day. See, Paul isn't the kind of in and out type of evangelist that we are a bit used to today. He's in it for the long term. Making sure that firm foundations are laid. And it also helps us to see that later when Paul responds by letters to his churches, it's with a great understanding of their circumstances that he writes. He's not just passing judgment on something that is... Oh, I'll, I'll, I'm hearing the base level, I'll just pass judgment on it. He is very acquainted with what is going on in these churches. Now, we don't know much about this Tyrannus, or Rex, as I like to call him. Thank you. But we do know that many people came to faith, both Jews and Greeks, because of his actions. So when when Paul is forced out of the synagogue, the result of that is actually the gospel is presented to a wider audience. And we see that with persecution of the church, when the church is spread out. We see the same thing. When, when Satan assails the church, God uses that to bring a further audience to faith. And in verse 11 of Acts 19, Paul Luke draws our attention to the great power which was given to Paul. 
So in verse 11 it says this, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Now the emphasis here is on the power that's been given to Paul, not on the handkerchief or the apron. See, when Luke writes, we should get into this system of how Luke presents things. He presents something because he's going to tell you of the opposite that's coming. Remember when he talked about Barnabas? And then that was immediately followed by Ananias and Sapphira. Here's the good example. Here's the bad example. He does it to highlight differences in people's approach. So here's Paul. He's been given this power that God has given to him. And it's so powerful that people are healed even if their handkerchief has just touched him. And that, you know, basically they're touching out. So it's the faith, not the... Yeah, you get it? It's not the handkerchief. We can't go around waving handkerchiefs at each other and expecting people to get healed. Okay, we can laugh, but people have tried it. Okay? It's the fact that Paul had the power from God and people reached out. A bit like the, the woman who was bleeding and she reached out and touched Jesus' hem. Was it Jesus' hem that healed her? No. It was the fact that she knew that reaching out to Jesus would heal her. And it's the same thing here. But Paul, or Luke has written, has written this and he's drawn our attention to this because we're about to meet another group of people. So on one hand you've got the power from God and then you have the sons of Sceva who come along. Now let me read this. These guys were casting out evil spirits. And in verse 13 it says this. So this is immediately after this handkerchief and aprons. Okay, So see the reason why it's being written down. Verse 13. A group of Jews were travelling from town to town casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation saying, I command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied to them, scary. Scary. I've been in the presence of somebody evilly possessed. And it is a scary, scary situation. Especially when that thing turns on you. The evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them, attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. Okay, there's a bit of a reality check here. This is an abuse of the name of Jesus. Note that the chants were the name of Jesus who Paul preaches about. There's no personal contact, there's no personal connection or belief. Therefore, there was no faith either. And the result? They got battered. They got battered. 
I mean, there's a pretty graphic description of what happens to people who mess around with things they shouldn't be messing around with. When I was at school, people used to mess around with Ouija boards and thinking it was fun and something somehow that was just something to waste your time on. It wasn't really real. It wasn't really something that was going to be a danger. Let me tell you, there are real dangers in any of these things. So I've been a long time believer that faith is the standing on a promise of God. And I think scripture tells us this quite plainly. If God says to you that something is going to happen, you are standing on that promise. Your faith that you exercise is based on that promise. But somehow we've got this faith that says, well, if we believe something for long enough, and if we talk about it long enough, and if we pray hard enough about it, then God will surely just do it. And it's such a skewed view of faith. Because faith is, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and for us, standing on the promise that God has given to you. Faith is not wishing for something and plucking it out of thin air. It's not wishing for something blindly. It's standing on promises. That's how Paul could be so assured that when he got battered, when he was beaten, when he was whipped, when he was shipwrecked and all these things that happened to him, that's why he could be so assured that he'll get up and carry on. Because the promise that Jesus has given him was far outweighing the circumstances he was going through. And the danger with wishful thinking is that actually when it doesn't happen, we are crushed. So let's be careful. So in this instance, when this evil spirit batters these sons of Sceva, there's a surprising outcome. A fear of the Lord descended, it says, upon the city. And Jesus was honoured. Sometimes it takes the scary to make us realise just who God is. Remember somebody saying to me that you know they they they'd found Christianity, they found Jesus as a direct result of searching everywhere else first. And when they encountered the evil they realise that there must be a good. Now, I wouldn't like to go that way, but that is undoubtedly the way some people go. I want to pick out something that might be helpful to us. Acts 19, 17. Start there. Follow it if you've got your your Bibles or if you want to look at it afterwards. I just want to pick something out. The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus. So this is the result of this evil spirit battering these sons of Sceva, these false, if you like. Um, Yeah, they were false. A solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honoured. And many who became believers confessed their sins or confessed their sinful practices. A number of them 
who had been practising sorcery, brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. That's a lot of books. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Now what is it you think I want you to notice out of that? Many who have become believers confess their sinful practices. These books were coming from the believers, not just from those practicing sorcery. I want you to notice that there were believers who were still practicing sorcery and they continued in their sinful practices. Remember, old habits die hard. But they were still called believers. And it's evident that they had not come out fully from their old practices. But fear of the Lord and his great power led to a great repentance. How does that make you feel? In our solitude, as we sit there, I know we're part of a church, but as we sit there in solitude, how does that make you feel? Actually, you can be called a believer and still be trapped in old ways. And Jesus wants to free us of it. And that's what I think this story shows us. The people repented when the fear of the Lord came on them and they burned all the things that they were still holding on to from their past. Such was their repentance that they replaced their passions for sorcery with a newfound passion for Jesus. So much so that the fires burned brightly, not only within them as sin was consumed by the Holy Spirit's conviction, but also from the bonfire which they threw their books onto. A significant act to anyone looking on. You see, restoration is a powerful thing. But restoration begins with repentance. Repentance is understanding and knowing. Actually, we haven't got everything right and we haven't been doing everything right. And if we're totally honest with each other, all of us, we will know that there are things in our lives that we wish we didn't do and that we wish we could just let go of. And even though our conviction is to let go of it, we get dragged back to it. I'm speaking for honesty now, okay? Because I think we need to be honest. There are things in our lives that we are desperate to get rid of. And I mean that with all sincerity. But we somehow get dragged back to it. And I think Paul gives us hope. You still believe us, but you've got some work to be done in your life. There's still some sanctification to be carried out. There's still some letting go of things that we're struggling with. After this bonfire, Paul, it's almost like mission accomplished for Paul. He kind of goes, right, okay, yeah, Ephesus is done. The fear of the Lord has fallen on the entire city. Repentance is everywhere. Job's done. I'm ready for my next mission. So Paul acknowledges the prompting of the Spirit to return to Jerusalem via Greece and Corinth. So he's going to hop back over into Europe, and then he's going to go back and head off to Jerusalem. 
But his emphasis has now shifted. So whilst he's heading for Jerusalem, he now knows his final destination. Paul now knows that eventually he's going to end up in Rome. And all of his attention from now on starts to filter through to the fact that God has told him, Rome is where you are heading. And even, within, even knowing what was going to happen to him in Rome, like Jesus in Jerusalem, set his face and said, right, okay, that's where I'm going. You see, Rome was the cultural and political centre. The Roman Empire was occupying everywhere here. And if you're going to change anything, then you go to the heart. When God changes us, what does he change? Our hearts. And the heart influences how we then act and think and do. But we still do things wrong, yeah? But our heart has been changed. So Paul is going for the heart. And Rome was the beating heart of all of the political influence of the day. It's a bit like trying to politically influence the UK from Stockport here. Anyone tried it? Anyone tried to bring about UK-wide political influence from Stockport or from Bangor or from anywhere else? You might have some limited success, but eventually you're going to have to get on a train and you have to go to London and you'll have to go to Parliament where the government sits if you want to politically persuade and change a nation. Rome governed an empire. So Paul was heading for Rome. That was God's plan. We're going to influence Rome. We're going to go right for the heart. But all this is a little way off yet. And it'll be covered in the weeks to come. But for now, let's return to Ephesus. Paul has left. Okay? He's left Ephesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And trouble is brewing. Already. Even though this repentance has fallen on them, even though this fear of the Lord has fallen on the city, Paul's left to go to Jerusalem and trouble starts to brew. You see, people with control hate losing it. We see it all the time, even today. When somebody's in power, in control, and something threatens you, you fight back. Now, it has to be said that when there's revival in a place, somebody is going to lose out because somebody's making money on the opposite side of the fence. And the same is true in Ephesus. See, there was going to be a significant impact on anybody who was living out of peddling false gods and artifacts of false worship. See, if a whole city starts to turn to God, they're going to do away with all the other stuff they've relied on, aren't they? And that's what we see happening in Ephesus. Suddenly, some people were really struggling because their upkeep had just disappeared overnight. Again, an understanding of Ephesus and what was going on will help us. And Jamie gave us an understanding of the culture of Corinth, which helps us to see what was going on there. Well, it helps us to see and feel what's going on in Ephesus if we know a little bit about the culture. See, Ephesus was famous throughout the world for its temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple and the statue of Artemis or Diana. 
the many-breasted goddess of fertility. And people came from everywhere to see it, to be influenced by it. You see, where there's a statue, there is money to be made from the people who come to visit. And I've just realised what slide I should do, but don't worry. It's all right. When when there's a statue, there's money to be made from the people who come to visit. Now, if you've travelled anywhere in the world, you will know that souvenirs assail you from all sides. Yeah? You can't get away from them. Whenever you go to a famous place, there's always somebody on the way in telling you something to do with it. If you go to Blackpool, okay, you will pick up a little Blackpool tower on a keyring or a little plate with Blackpool tower on it or a picture of a tram or... Do you see what, I'm, see what I'm saying? Whenever there's something that attracts people, there's always money to be made from selling artefacts about that thing. And so here we have one of the seven wonders of the natural world, this massive temple with this statue of Artemis. Now, one such businessman who was making a lot of money was a guy called Demetrius. Now, we're introduced to him in verse 23. Demetrius was a silversmith, and trade was obviously being badly affected. So he called together other businessmen, and he addresses them. So Acts 19, verse 26. This is Artemis. Uh, sorry, this is Demetrius addressing his fellow businessmen. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from our business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence. And that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. Now, when I read that, I'm like, hmm, yeah. Of course, your real interest is... Artemis, that's your real interest here, isn't it? Because you preceded it with all the stuff you're actually going to lose your influence on, which is your money making. I'm not sure how you read into it, but that one thing stood out to me. These guys were not really interested in Artemis. Regardless of how powerful they made her out to be, or how she was being used to justify an uprising, their interest was in one thing and one thing only. Money, their business, their upkeep, their way of living. And we shouldn't be surprised. Because today, that's still probably the number one thing that influences what we do. We love church. We love coming to church. We love the responsibilities of belonging to Jesus. We love being part of his family. But threaten my livelihood... And I'll back away. But I'll still keep my hand in, just in case. That's generally what happens. When we're reading these guys in Acts, when we're reading about what they're doing, they're giving up everything. Paul especially. It's food for thought. So... A riot starts to brew. 
And at the instigation of these businessmen, two companions of Paul, Gaius and Aristarchus, have been dragged into the amphitheatre. Now, the amphitheatre is massive. Anyone who's been to Ephesus will know that the amphitheatre is huge. And they're dragged there by this mob. And Paul also was going to go, but he has some people in influence who write to him and say, we caution you about going. You'll get ripped apart if you go there. You're the instigator of all this. Don't go. So he doesn't. So Paul evidently had friends in high places. And whilst this riot's going on, they drag these two people in into the amphitheatre. And it takes the mayor of the town or one of the governors of the town to quiet the crowd. You see, Artemis hasn't actually been offended by anything that Paul has said. The livelihood of the people making money off the falseness have been threatened, but Artemis herself has not been. Nothing's been stolen from the temple. So the riot was somewhat unlawful and in danger of drawing unwanted attention from the Roman governors. At this news, the crowd dispersed and Paul's companions were released. See, God knows what he is doing and he does protect us even though we go through some pretty horrific stuff. And he, makes, he draws a point out. All this colourful description of the events in Ephesus points us to a single conclusion. The mayor argued that the statue of Artemis had fallen from heaven. So if you read the description, this, this great figure this statue, they argued, had fallen from heaven, had been given to them as a gift from the gods, not man-made. Okay, that's the whole point of his argument. The mayor argued that the statue of Artemis had fallen from heaven and therefore was not man-made, so why are you people so fearful that Paul has been speaking out against man-made gods and idols well they haven't really got an answer for that because either this thing's man made or it's really come down from God and therefore what's the problem but there obviously is a problem for them because they shut up and they leave the temple or leave the amphitheatre with the tails between their legs simply because the mayor has had the wisdom to point out something. Why are you so fearful of something that's truly God unless it's truly man-made? And the answer is, it was truly man-made. And only God is God. It's a bit of a double whammy, to be honest, for them. And no wonder the crowd quietened down. See, either Artemis has real power because the statue has been given from God, which she plainly didn't have. Or the God who Paul worshipped had power and authority over Artemis, which he plainly does. So all of these events in Ephesus are designed to show the power of, that the power of God demonstrated by his followers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, overcomes all. When the Holy Spirit is within us, you overcome all things that assail you. 
This is Paul's letter to the Ephesians when he writes later. Read the letter to the Ephesians. So we're in Ephesus now. So have a brew later, write, read Ephesians and read it in the context of what you see going on here. See, when it gets to Ephesians 6 and it talks about putting on the spiritual armour, well, it means a lot to us, doesn't it? But imagine what it meant to these guys in Ephesus. All these things that are going on, this world of, is it Artemis, is it God? Or all these things that are coming against them, put on your armour, which God gives to you and supplies to you, put it on. And you'll be able to stand against all spiritual attacks. The one good thing about the letters of Ephesians when you read it as well is that there's no doctrinal statement to correct. Paul's not having a go at them about their misunderstanding of things. In fact, he's just encouraging them to keep going. There's no doctrinal statements in the letter, just encouragement to keep holding on in the battle that we all know so well. Old identity versus new identity. And we all struggle with it. And Paul's alluded to it before. Believers still stuck in sorcery. The church at Ephesus was of great importance to Paul, which we'll see in Acts 20 next week. So before then, have a read of it. See what's going on there. So our journey through Acts is a journey through real events, real times, and his testimony to God's changing power through Jesus. Remember that some believers hold on to their old practices. And if we're desperately honest with each other, we will know that's true of all of us. Maybe we have to be honest with ourselves and ask whether some of our priorities need addressing. We're all on a journey together. And the church is here to help each other on that way. So I'm going to link it now to what I said right at the very beginning about being careful what we say to each other. We are all on different places on our journey. So at this moment in time, this belief in Jesus is called the way. Okay? And we are all on the way. We are on part of the journey. We're all transitioning through different things in our lives. So we mustn't think that because I've got it all together that the person next to me has. Because we're all at different points. But the one thing you can say is that when somebody puts their trust and their belief in Jesus the heart is changed and you are justified before a holy God. And if Jesus comes now, anybody that's made that decision will be taken with him. All of us. Regardless of where you are on the walk. Does that make sense? So we need to be careful about how we talk to one another. Let's make our burning passion Jesus. And as we trust him, and he works out the bad stuff out of our lives as we put our trust more in him, then we start to display more and more of his goodness. Okay? Let's continue in the journey. Let's continue on the way. But let's be mindful that we're all at different stages of change. And we all need different ways and approaches. The church works when it works together. But we're not all individual. Oh, sorry, we're not all the same. We are complete individuals with our own issues, our own problems, and our own walk and change. But our destination is the same. So we, our goal should be, let's all look at the destination and let's all help each other get there. That's what Paul talks about all the time in his letters. Let's get to the destination. Set your eyes there. All right, you've got this to deal with and you've got that to deal with, but set your eyes there. That's what it's about. 
And as a church, all I can say to you is, set your eyes on the promise that Jesus has given you. Not on the promises I'm giving giving to you, or anyone else for that matter, but the promises that Jesus gives to you. Because that's the only thing that matters. Okay. Thanks, Jamie. Sorry. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.